0: Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, you want to follow along, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So we're making our way through Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, and we uh, We know that uh, Paul, uh, well, we assume that Paul received a letter uh, from the church in Corinth, and uh, we don't have a record of what that letter is, but Paul responded to that letter. And, And 1 Corinthians 8 is really a response to a letter that he received. And uh, so we don't know the questions, but we do know Paul's answers. And because we know the answers, we can kind of surmise what the questions are. And so now Paul is turning to a new subject in chapter 8, which evidently, I believe, was a question that they had asked him. And so beginning with verse 1, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. How many of you had breakfast this morning? Can I see your hands? Man, is not that, that like torture if you hadn't? <laughs> I'm, like, I was, I'm just drooling right now, but anyways. Uh, yeah, so what's the background? Uh, again, like I said, this was a response to a question that Paul had. Well, what's the background? The background is this. They didn't have the Texas Roadhouse barbecue in uh, Corinth, at least not to my knowledge. Um, but they did have shambles, you might say. That's And by the way, that's not a chain restaurant. Sambo's used to be. I remember growing up going to Sambo's in California. But no, uh, shambles, what was it? Well, here's the deal. In Corinth, they had all these uh, temples to Diana and Aphrodite, different uh, idols that uh, the Corinthians worshipped in that culture. And uh, the best cuts of meat that you could find would be offered by the Corinthians to these idols. And so they'd bring their, you know, their best porterhouse steak or a T-bone or whatever, I mean, the best cuts possible. They'd bring it to the temple. A uh, portion of it would be burned and sacrificed to the idols or to the gods. Uh, another portion would be given to the priests. And uh, you know what the priests didn't eat, uh, what they themselves didn't eat, they, w- they would then sell it um, at temple-connected meat markets and even restaurants known as the Shambles. Again, that's not a name of a restaurant, but they were called Shambles. Um, so so that's the background that's going on here. And evidently, some of these believers are asking Paul, Paul, you know, what's going on? Should we be eating this meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Because, you know, it's been offered to these false, false gods and stuff. And, and uh, for some believers, that was a real issue. For other believers, however, man, these were the best cuts of meat, and they had the lowest prices. They were probably better than Costco, and so it's like it's no big deal, man. Let's just, just it's an idol is nothing. Let's just eat that meat, and uh, and so, uh, so they would just go ahead and do it. Well, other believers you know maybe maybe it was a gentile that had been you know thinking that this idol was a real god and he's been worshiping upon all his life and offering these sacrifices and now he's a born again believer in Jesus Christ and he doesn't want to return back to that lifestyle he doesn't want to have anything to do with idolatry and he would see these believers these other believers they'd be just going right to the temple and buying the meat and it would offend them And so there was a real issue there in Corinth. And so Paul is addressing, and he's gonna address specifically their question, but before he does that, he's gonna deal with some core issues because there's some core issues that are underlying uh, what he's speaking about here in chapter one. And so he says to them, we know that we all have knowledge. Now in the context of his chapter here, I think Paul is being sarcastic. I'm sarcastic by nature, so I just kind of assume he's being sarcastic. To those who knew, you know, they had this knowledge. Hey, it's, not, it's an idol's nothing. And so they would, you know, they would just go ahead and, and, and flaunt that freedom. They'd go ahead and eat meat. They didn't care what anybody else believed. And so I think Paul's being sarcastic towards those. Hey, hey, we know that we all have knowledge. Um, but here's what he says. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge, you know, you think about it. I mean, we all went to school, right? And we even have teachers in our fellowships. Learning is important. The kids are going in the back. They're learning about the Lord. Knowledge is important, um, but knowledge can puff up. Um, Knowledge can, you know, in and of itself, it's not bad. But because of my sinful flesh, because of your sinful flesh, it can result in pride and conceit. It can. doesn't necessarily have to, but it can. And so the issue that Paul wants to address here is the pride of some of these knowledgeable people and also contrast it with love. And uh, so he says knowledge puffs up, or, or it inflates, you might might th- look at it that way. And so Isaiah, uh, actually the Bible says a lot about pride. Isaiah 5, verse 21, Woe to those who who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe woe to you if you think you're you're a know-it-all basically. Romans 12:16, do not be wise in your own opinion. So so knowledge puffs up, it can, it can cause pride and conceit, but love edifies. That word edifies, It's it's it means, uh, well, we get the word edification, but it means to build up, to construct. It's like building a house or or building a building. Later on in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to say, love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Pride's puffed up, but love is not puffed up. What a contrast between love and knowledge. It's a difference between a bubble and In a building, if you think about it. Let me ask you this rhetorically. Don't raise your hands, don't make a comment. Are you swelling with pride? Or are you or are you growing in love? Such an important concept for us as believers. Verse two, he says this: And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet, as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Paul here is basically saying, uh, if you're a know-it-all, have you guys ever met a know-it-all before? I've met know-it-alls. I meet them all the time. (laughs) You know, they're the people, you you know how to identify a know-it-all? You say something to them, you offer some advice, and they go, I know, I know, I know, I know, I already know. That's a know-it-all, basically. So if you didn't know, that's what a know-it-all is. Paul's basically saying, hey, if you're a know-it-all, you don't know as much as you think you know. You know, uh, when I was younger, teenagers, and if you're a teenager here, um, I commiserate with you. (laughs) I can understand. Because we were all teenagers at one time. Uh, There was a phase in my life, you know, when, when I was speaking of Father's Day, when I was young, man, my dad was like, he wasn't God, but he was like God to me. I mean, he had that kind of influence over my life. You know, my dad was just everything. And then I became a teenager. And man, my dad is just, he's not hip. (laughs) <laughs> he's just out of touch he doesn't have a clue he must have never been a kid because he just has no clue you know and my dad became dumb in my mind until I grew out of teenager until I became a father and then I was like man my dad was actually pretty smart you know and uh, <laughs> later on in life just you know saying dad man I I, 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 I just uh, thank you for being the, the father that you were and you know it, by the way it's important to bless your dad so if your father is still alive today um, it's, it's what a good what a good thing to do is just to thank them for how they raised you. I pray pray that they raised you well. Maybe maybe you had a dad that wasn't that good of a dad, and feels I feel terrible about that. But you know, thank the Lord for those dads that that were godly examples in your lives. And praise the Lord, we all have a heavenly father, right? That's that's the best dad, obviously. So, um, <clears throat> you know, when I was uh, when we were a young couple and uh, started, we got married um, and started having children right away. And uh, so we had four kids and they were all, you know, under, I don't know, they were all a couple years apart. And as a young father, we started attending a church. And we we were the younger people in this church and there were a lot of older couples that had kids that were roughly our age because we got young, married pretty young. We're from Kentucky. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <coughs> no, no we, were, we were 20 when we got married. So it's not that young, but... Um, but a lot of these older people, I would look at these families, pastors, and elders and stuff, and I, I could identify what they were doing wrong. As, I mean, I, I knew exactly what they were doing wrong. Man, I, I'm not going to do that with my kids. I, I thought I had all the answers until I started. My kids started growing up, and then I started realizing, man, I don't know as much as I think I know. You know, and uh, so that that kind of comes with age, I think. Um, if I look back at all the knowledge that I've acquired so far in my lifetime. One of the things that I think I'm starting to understand more and more is, is the realization of how little I actually do know. I really don't know all. You know? I don't have all the answers. Um, <clears throat> this is what the Bible has to say about know-it-alls. Proverbs 26, verse 12, do you, see a man, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. It's pretty, pretty strong words. Knowledge is a funny thing. You know, knowledge can give me power. If I become aware, if I, if, I, if, I, if I learn something, it can actually give me, it can empower me to make informed decisions based on knowledge. Knowledge is a good thing in that sense. Uh, it can give me freedom. Knowledge can free me from superstitious you know, beliefs or, or fear, living in fear. Once I know, once I understand something, if I have the right knowledge, man, I, I'm freed from things that maybe held me back in the past. So knowledge can be very beneficial, but it also can be harmful. How can it be harmful? Well, if it produces pride and conceit in my heart, it's, it's not good. Um, also, maybe there's some things that I, that I really shouldn't know. You might say, "What's this? Was there some knowledge I shouldn't know?" I'll give you one very important example: pornography. You think about that, man. I, I wish I had never seen a pornographic image in my life. I wish I had never seen one, because it, it sticks with you. Kids, man, it, it'll stick with you. You, you just—it's—it's it's terrible. It's harmful. They've—they've they've done all these studies on on the harmful. So, so there's certain knowledges that maybe you don't really—you shouldn't know, at least not in that context or in that situation. And so Paul says, if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. So let me ask you this morning, do you know as you ought to know? You might say, well, what does that mean? Say, do you know that you don't know everything? Maybe that's a realization for some of you. Like, a, like what? I don't know everything. <laughs> do you know that you don't know everything? Let me ask you this: Are you a teachable person? Can you receive admonition or exhortation or correction? Can you receive it? Can you admit, hey, maybe I don't, maybe I don't have it all, or maybe I don't understand it all, maybe I, maybe I don't know everything. If you can, if you are teachable, then you do know as you ought to know. But if you're not, if you think I got all the answers, well then you don't know as much as you think you know and then Paul ends that verse, he says, "But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him uh well, you know, I was sharing yesterday at the tea there's a there's a gentleman that I know here in the community and and uh uh, every time I see this gentleman, it seems like he knows every single pastor in Rochester on a first name basis, like they're buddies, you know. And I'm I, obviously, I guess I'm one of his buddies too. And uh, he'll come up to me, hey, hey, and he'll drop a name of some pastor. Hey, did you talk to so and so? You know that there's. I'm, I'm like, no, I, I don't. And then, oh, you don't know that? And and it seems like his identity is wrapped up in in who he knows. He knows very many people, and he drops names all the time uh, when. Whenever I see him, uh, he seems to know everything about everyone. Uh, I'm not a, a friend on Facebook, but I've been to his Facebook page. And he's always got selfies of him with some important person. And, uh, anyways, his identity, like I said, it seems to be on who he knows. Maybe it makes him feel more important, or whatever. And uh, for people, sometimes that's an issue, right? Uh, You know, we we like to we like to be associated with maybe a famous person or whatever. Maybe there's a musician that we you know we want we want to you know I know so and so. Listen, in life, it's not who you know. It's not even what you know that ultimately matters. It's who knows you. Who knows you? And that's what Paul is saying. If anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Psalm 138, verse 6, Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards, or he sees, the lowly. But the proud he knows from afar. He makes a point of knowing the humble knowing the teachable, knowing those that admit that they don't know it all. But the prideful person, that relationship, he's distant from them. Verse 4. So now that's the, that's the core that he's dealing with, the core issues. Now he's going to get down to the meat, so to speak, pun, no pun intended, the meat of the question here. Verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols... We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. So first of all, an idol is nothing in the world. An idol is what people make it, right? Psalm 115, verses 4 through 7. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. I, I'm sorry. I always think of that one character in uh, Star Wars. Uh, I forgot his guy's name. But eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do <laughs> I just ruined it for you, I know. <laughs> they have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throats. In idol, you know, in those days. So so, Teresa and I went to Israel uh, a number of years ago. And uh, we ended up going to, uh, one day we went to this museum in, in what was known as Tel Dan. So Dan is the northern part of Israel where the tribe of Dan uh, eventually settled. They were the ones that got into idolatry. They had the golden calf there uh, up in where they worshipped up there and stuff, uh, idols. And we went into this museum, and I don't know about you, but whenever I think of, like, Indiana Jones or I th- if I think of any movies where there was, like, some idolatry, this always looks like this big statue, you know, With flames all around and stuff, the idols that they had in this museum—they looked like little, not even Barbie dolls. They were smaller than that, you know, like Ginny dolls if you know what those are. About that same size, and it's—it was—it's just like this little. It's like they worship that, but that's what they were, and they worship those little, little, little figurines. That's what their idols look like. So these idols are nothing in the world, Paul says, and we know that. We know that it's just a piece of wood or a a piece of metal that they molded into something that they're they're worshiping. Now, it's interesting, when we get to chapter 10, a little later on this morning, no, I'm just kidding. When we get to chapter 10, verse 20, Paul's going to say when the Gentiles sacrifice to idols, uh, whether they know it or not, they're sacrificing to demons. Now he's not saying that the little stick is a demon, that little figurine's a demon, but what, it's, what he's saying is that demons take advantage of the opportunity to deceive and enslave men through the worship of the idol. We'll get to that when we get to chapter 10. And so an idol is nothing in the world and there is no other god but one. Again, uh, in 2 Corinthians, Paul's gonna say that Satan is the God of this age, little g by the way, the God of this age. Well, he's not saying that Satan's God. What he's saying, you know, he's not a God at all, but he wants to be worshiped as one and people have made him a God in their hearts. As they reject Jesus Christ, you gotta worship somebody. And so if you're not worshiping the Lord, you, whether you know it or not, you're worshiping the devil. You're serving him, you're serving his purposes. Verse four, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. So an idol, again, it's really nothing. There, is no, there isn't any other God except the Lord God Almighty. However, verse 7, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge, For some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. I mean, let me read that in another translation. However, not all believers know this. Know what? Know that an idol is nothing. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods, and their weak consciences are violated. You see, not all believers know that an idol is nothing. This is an interesting uh, comment that I got out of Robertson's Word Pictures. It's one of the Bible study tools I use. He says this, or they say this, knowledge is has to overcome inheritance and environment, prejudice, fear, and many other hindrances. What, what's that saying is, knowledge has to overcome how you were raised, what you were taught, and what you've experienced. And, and how you were raised, or what you've been taught, or what you've fixed, those are, those are very uh, uh, powerful influences in a person's life for some eating meat sacrificed to idols would offend their conscience because of how they were raised or what they were taught or how they what they experienced paul refers to their consciences as being weak that sounds almost offensive is it calling somebody weak in that sense what does that mean the word by the way literally does mean weak but again going back to robertson's word pictures it, it speaks of it as an unenlightened conscience The person, see, we're talking about believers, okay? They know that they've been set free by the work of the cross, but they can't overcome their conscience based on how they were raised or what they were taught or what they experienced in the past. Their conscience is just, they can't get beyond that. God's given mankind an internal awareness of him. We read about that in Romans and other places in the Bible, uh, a knowledge of him Whether you've gone to church, whether you have a Bible, there's a knowledge that God has placed in mankind. And also a knowledge of right and wrong. And what is it? It's a conscience. Everybody has a conscience. You know when you've done wrong. Your conscience reveals that to you. Now, when a person becomes born again, they don't lose their conscience. It's just now God speaks to them through their consciences. Your conscience, my conscience, it's a very sensitive gauge inside of us. The Bible never, you can go read through the entire Bible, it never encourages a person to go against their conscience. The Bible never encourages a person to go against that sensitive internal barometer of right and wrong. In fact, just the opposite. There's a lot of verses I was looking like, how many times does the Bible speak about conscience? Very many times. And the Bible talks about having a pure and a clean conscience over and over and over again. So there's an issue here. People's consciences are being violated, and Paul is not encouraging uh, believers that have this knowledge to violate the conscience of somebody who's, who's, who has a weak conscience. Let me give you an example from my own life're speaking about uh, how you were raised or what you know what you taught or what you experienced. Um, I grew up in a church that uh in my family i don't know if it's as much the church as my family but we honored the lord's day okay it was i for for the growing up i thought that was the sabbath i mean that's how we observed it you know you couldn't do anything on the lord's day and i thought it was a the sabbath then i found out wait sabbath is saturday but we're uh you know we're doing this on sunday but anyways it was the lord's day and there's just certain things you didn't do on sundays i mean we had it was pretty pretty my parents laid down the law, pretty much. Certain things you didn't do. Well, as I got grew older, you know, and I, I, I'm a young adult and stuff, I'm kind of making my own decisions. Sometimes I would violate that thing, and I'd go do something on Sunday that you know Christians aren't supposed to do on Sunday. My conscience would bug me, man. I feel like I feel like I was sinning. Well, it wasn't until I received knowledge, studying Colossians. We just finished our study in Colossians. I remember just being, it's like like, uh, the Lord just kind of peeled back a a layer of an onion and all of a sudden I see, I understand something. Colossians 2, verses 16 to 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. All those things, all those festivals, all those observances, this is just a shadow to point to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ fulfills those things. Romans fourteen five, five and 6, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks, and he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and gives, uh, gives God thanks. So for me personally, right knowledge gained from God's word uh, overcame how I was raised. I came to realize, you know, yeah, OK, uh, that's what I've been taught, but, but, but Jesus Christ fulfills that. He fulfills the Sabbath for me. And so I don't have to sit there and agonize over all these things, because it's, it's, it, it, that knowledge overcame my conscience in that sense of that right knowledge from God's word. But I do know that there's not everybody that has that belief. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you, uh, you know, you you have some pretty strict things that you don't do on Sundays. It's the Lord's day, and so there's certain certain things, and that's how you were raised, or that's what you believe, or your experience, or whatever. Uh, listen, I understand that that there's people that don't share the same knowledge that I have, or that same understanding. Uh, I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to judge them. I'm not going to also try to persuade them. Hey. You don't need to. You don't need to worry about that, man. Come on, you know. Come with us. We're going to do this on Sunday. You know. I'm not going to do that, because I know that that person's conscience is. That's what's holding them in that in that belief, right? I'm not going to try to persuade them to abandon their conviction based on my knowledge. They need to arrive at their own conclusion, just as I did in that in with that example. You know, what's a funny thing though? Paul uses the word weak conscience. And I, of course, if some people, maybe that's offensive to some people, but it's Paul, it's not me. I'm not saying that you're weak. But that's what Paul says in regard to this. Oftentimes, the person with the weak conscience, they think that they're the more spiritual person because of whatever it is that they're doing or not doing. And they'll often judge or condemn others that don't hold their same beliefs. It's a funny thing, but that's, that's uh, what happens. So you, you see pride in that sense, too. Well, here's the deal. Verse 8, food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. I'm thankful that I don't have to, I can eat pork with seafood. I mean, I love it. Again, my stomach is grumbling. I shouldn't have put those pictures up there. Um, I'm getting hungry as I think about those things. Listen, there's knowledge regarding food, okay? It's not the main thing. And unfortunately, there are so many believers that major on the minors, these these things that are non-salvation issues. They, that's like that's their main focus, and and it becomes uh, larger than salvation, and it becomes uh, more divisive uh, among people, and it shouldn't be. Food's a non-salvation issue. And so Paul says, you know, uh, if you're a believer in Corinth with the liberty to eat meat sacrificed to idols, go for it. But Paul says, be careful. Be careful. Verse 9. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. So now Paul's going to introduce a new concept Christian liberty. See, freedom also carries, or liberty I should say, also carries responsibility in God's economy. Don't let your liberty be a stumbling block to somebody else. Verse 10, and he's gonna give an example now how. For if anyone uh, sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? When we were in the book of Acts, the Jerusalem council, I don't know if you recall that in Acts chapter 15, there was a real issue that grew up, that started in the church there. Um, in, uh, so there's Gentiles coming to faith and uh, Jews, both Jews and Gentiles, coming to faith. And uh, so there's this, you know, there's different backgrounds. You, somebody grew up one way, another person grew up another way. And there started to become real issues in the church. And so um, there were Jews that circumcision was a big deal. Uh, Feasts of Israel, the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament law. They felt that a Gentile that's becoming a Christian needed to become a Jew in the sense of observing the law of Moses in order to be a Christian. And, uh, and so uh, the question came up, should the Gentiles be circumcised? And uh, should they observe the Feast of Israel? Should they uh, observe dietary restrictions? And they arrived at a conclusion emphatically. They said, no, no. But on the same token, and they don't say this, but they imply it. On the same token, does a Christian need to totally disregard the law of Moses because he's not a Jew? Again, the answer is no. So what was their decision? Their decision wasn't, hey, you Gentiles can totally disregard the law of Moses in entirety because you're not Jewish. Just forget it all. That's not what they said. What did they say? They recognized that uh, the church was made up of both Gentiles and Jews, and there's Jews that we could get offended uh, you know, that had sensitive they grew up with the very I don't know if you've ever known anybody that's Jewish, but they I mean they they've you it's kind of a standing joke with a Jewish friend of mine, you know, that he's just he was born guilty because he's Jewish. You know, there's Jewish parents, I guess Jewish moms always kinda lay guilt on their kids or apparently. That's what he says, so it's not me. <laughs> um, but there'd be Jews who, you know, a brand, brand new baby Christian, he just came out of Judaism and uh, they've got all this I would call it baggage, but it's not necessarily baggage in a bad sense, but they got all this background uh, of all these observances that they do and uh, and now they're they're seeing these gentiles coming to faith and these gentiles are just, you know, they're going to the to the idol temple and they're eating meat and they're, you know, they they're not bleeding it in a kosher way or whatever and stuff. Uh, and so they're getting really offended. They're struggling with it. So that Jerusalem Council, um, they came up with four things, four things that they wanted to uh, communicate to the Gentile believers. The first one regards morality, and that applies to Jews and Gentiles alike abstain from sexual immorality. The next three, though, those only have to do with sensitivity. Again, they're not salvation issues. Absence, uh, they, they wanted the, the uh, Gentiles to abstain from foods or things offered to idols. It's interesting. They, they said that, the Jerusalem council, uh, from blood and from things strangled. These are the three things that uh, Gentile believers wouldn't have any issues with, but Jewish believers would really struggle. And it would cause some major divisions within the church. And so, what the jerusalem council will, you know and they're communicating this in a sense they're they're freeing the gentiles okay no you don't have to be circumcised uh, you know you, there's all these things you don't have to do but you know what don't do these things if you don't do these things it's going to be good you know um don't stumble the new jewish believer who doesn't have the same knowledge as you or you think about this also uh, in verse ten, where he talks about someone seeing you eating in an idol's temple. Maybe you're a Gentile believer, and I mentioned that earlier. You know, you've been delivered from slavery or idolatry, and you're trying to stay as far away from it as possible. And you're a baby Christian, and you're looking at these these more mature Christians, and they're going to the idol's temple, and it's like, wait a minute, I thought we were. I, I thought we have been delivered from that. Why are, we, you know, why are they going there? And they might be emboldened, Paul says, to go and violate their conscience and go eat meat, sacrificed to idols. They don't have the same knowledge as you, and so their conscience could be violated. Paul says, hey, don't embolden the weak brother or sister in the Lord to violate their conscience. Now, let's bring it to our generation, our culture, you know we're starting to see uh, m- m- former muslims right uh, former jewish people come into faith in the lord both uh, jewish people and muslim people they don't eat pork right there's certain things that that they don't eat and uh, you know so yeah food could be an issue here you know we don't want to stumble a person like you know we had a person here who is a more uh, a muslim who came to faith in the lord and and uh I think she had that freedom to not eat pork, but it was such an ingrained thing in her life that she didn't. So, you know, we'd have a, we'd have potlucks here, and I, or or we do a meal thing, and we might have pork. I love pork, but we would make sure that we didn't just have pork because we don't want to offend her. We don't want to put her in a position where she feels like it's all I can eat and it's all that's there. So we would always be sensitive, chicken or, or beef or something on the side too. So, um, so you know, so culturally, yeah, we're we're still dealing with kind of in a sense a similar kind of a situation with food. But uh, what's a more widespread or, or pervasive issue um, that we're dealing with? I got off my notes. you got to brace <laughs> The concept still applies. Um, there's many areas today where some believers have liberty and others don't. I'll give you a good example, drinking alcohol. It's a non-salvation issue. You might, you might disagree with me, but I believe it's a non-salvation issue. Should Christians drink alcohol? Well, we know the Bible says not to be drunk, so we know that you know that there's an issue there. Um, but some Christians have the freedom to have a, a, a casual drink or, you know, have a drink once in a while. That's, that's, that's an issue that's a sensitivity issue watching television or going to movies, what type of music you listen to. Um, these are not salvation issues, and you may have liberty in some non-salvation issue, but the message here that, that transcends what Paul is talking about in their, in their day, but comes to us in our day, is be careful that your liberty doesn't stumble another brother or sister in the Lord. And you might say, you know what, I don't care. That's their problem. They just don't know. It's their problem, it's not my problem. Look what verse 11 says. Because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? That's pretty serious. And you might think, well, wait, wait, don't they know it's not a salvation issue? Listen, in God's economy, loving God and loving your neighbor is more important than your knowledge. More important than your knowledge. Love trumps knowledge. Verse 12. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Now, isn't that an interesting concept here? Here, maybe you've had this liberty. You know, I know that it's not a sin. I'll use alcohol, for example. I know it's not a sin for me to have a glass of wine with my dinner. I've got that freedom. And, And you're right, I don't believe it is a sin. However,. In exercising your freedom, if you cause another brother, a weaker brother or sister-in-law to, or sister in the Lord to sin, that becomes sin to you. Wait, I had freedom, but now it's sin because you've misused that liberty. That's what Paul is trying to communicate here. That misuse of liberty has now become sin. What you what you knew you wasn't a sin, it's now sin because you've caused a weak brother or sister to stumble. The key verse, and I think the overriding principle in this entire chapter is verse 13. Paul pretty much sums up his teaching on food sacrificed to idols, although we're going to deal with Christian liberty for about four chapters coming up. But he says this, verse 13, therefore, it's like a summation. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Meditate on that for a moment. Don't let that just slip through. Meditate on that moment. Listen to what Paul is saying. Paul is willing to forego his liberty, his freedom to eat meat, sacrificed to idols. Even though he knows he's free to do it, he's willing to forego that to not if, if, if it's going to cause a brother or sister to stumble. He's willing to give up his right. Man, have you ever done that? Have you ever, are you willing to give up something that I know I'm free to do that because you know it might stumble someone around you man Paul was would you ever love your brother or sister in Christ that much would you be willing to give up something you know you're free to enjoy in Christ for someone else that's a, that's a big sacrifice maybe it's bigger for some than others you might say yeah you know Paul here isn't saying he did give up me just that he's willing to it, it's like it's a hypothetical as Paul is saying here and you know it might be but it's not hypocritical Because I think Paul, given that situation, if he knew that, he definitely, he would just, I'm not going to eat meat anymore. That's a a big step to make, because you love somebody else. When we get to chapter 9, Paul's going to give a real example where he's laid down his freedom for the sake of the people he's ministering to. So Paul's saying this stuff, and it's not just a teaching. Paul lives it out. And we're going to see that lived out in chapter 9. You know, one of the things that I was meditating on as I was preparing this study, it seems like in our culture, everyone's getting offended by everything. And it's even in church too. It's in Christianity. So, you know, if I'm going to wear, maybe someone's offended by green shirts, you know, I mean, I can't wear a green shirt anymore because everybody, someone's offended by green, you know, maybe it's Whatever, it's not environmentally friendly or something like that. Am I to live my life in fear of offending everybody? It's a, it's a legitimate question, don't you think? I don't have an answer, because we are living in a, in a generation where people are more and more offended. But my, I guess my, my, my suggestion and how I'm going to go through this in life, because I'm sure we're going in, to encounter these things, let love guide you let god's love guide you. Your love for your brother and your sister let that guide you. I've got a quote from John Corson. He says every one of us is either a stepping stone or a stumbling stone as we either allow people to get closer to god or cause them to stumble unnecessarily. Man, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a stumbling stone to anybody. I want to be a stepping stone. I want want to help people get closer in their relationship with the Lord. I don't want my liberty to cause somebody to stumble. I don't want to be a stumbling stone. So let's sum up some key points here before uh, we close. First of all, going back to earlier in the lesson, do you know as you ought to know? Do you know that you don't know everything? Are you a teachable person? Can you receive admonition, exhortation, and correction? Next thing. Are you swelling with pride or are you growing in love? Growing in love. Such, there's substance there. Swelling with pride, it can be popped very easily. It's like a bubble. Do you love your brother or sister in Christ to the level that you'd be willing to lay aside your liberty if you were aware that something that you had the freedom to do? You know, I know I've got God's, God's, I can do this. And yet, if you knew that it was going to cause another brother or sister to stumble... Would you be willing to set that aside? Big questions to ask. Well that's what Paul is is communicating to the to the church here in Corinth. When I have the worship team coming up.